a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Tangled Web of the Black Widow Case read the November 3rd, 2009 headline in the BBC World News. The Black Widow in question is 77-year-old Betty Newmar. At this very moment, she sits in jail awaiting trial for the murder of her husband, Harold Gentry, who was killed in a burglary gone wrong. Or so it seemed. The article focuses on her victim's brother, Al Gentry, and his two-decade crusade to convince the police that Betty wasn't a grieving widow, but rather a heartless, conniving killer. But the author of the BBC World News piece isn't easily convinced. They write, Where is the evidence? The more I look into the story, the more it seemed to me to be a matter of assumption, presumption, and speculation. But if you believe that, you have to think Betty Newmar was dealt a bad hand. A really bad hand. An insanely awful hand. Because this is not the first husband of Betty's that mysteriously died. In fact, there were five total. Three husbands before Harold and one after. Each died in circumstances more suspicious than the last. And each conveniently benefited Betty. In some cases, she raked in tens of thousands of dollars in insurance claims. But does this 77-year-old grandmother deserve the name the Black Widow? Or is she just really unlucky? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you look at this story on the surface, it's a five-time widow who collects life insurance money after her husband's deaths. I mean, that sounds a bit incriminating. But actually, I think it makes a lot more sense when you look into her past. So let's start at the very beginning, the very best place to start. It is, it is. Betty's childhood. Among millions of other children, Betty grew up in the height of the Great Depression. She was born Betty Johnson in Ironton, Ohio, a mostly working-class town that had lost half its industrial jobs since the beginning of the Great Depression. And when Betty turns two, her father gets a job in a coal mine, which is a pretty terrible job by canary or human standards. It's hard. It's dangerous. You know, it's cold. Yeah, dark. Probably not a great smell. Can't imagine. Yeah, here's the thing, though. Like, 37% of Ohioans are out of work, so I think probably he just felt lucky to have a job. Totally. And by the end of the 30s, the economy is improving. However, just around the corner, 
a month after Betty turns 10, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor and the U.S. enters World War II. Now, with that comes another crisis of the world and food is rationed in order to help with the war effort. All this is to say is that the trauma of being alive in the 30s and 40s is really hard on everyone. Now, I think you hear us talking about people's backstories to sort of justify what happens in their life. And I just want to be very clear. My grandmother was born the same year Betty was born. My grandma does not have five dead husbands. I just, I think it's important to note, just because you're born in the 30s and 40s doesn't necessarily preclude you to being a black widow. I just think it's important to say that. Makes me want to look into your grandma. I mean, how well do you think you know her? (laughs) I thought pretty well, but now I'm really questioning everything. Let's jump ahead to 1949. Betty's graduating high school. The war's behind her. She's focused on her future, right? And she meets this nice fella by the name of Clarence Malone. Yeah, they graduate together. They start dating. And just a year later, they marry. And, you know, so presumably, we think Betty's probably envisioning her life with this man. She just married her high school sweetheart. Things are going pretty great. And they lived happily ever after. The end. Did they? No. No. Of course not. Come on. What a weird podcast episode. <laughs> Seven months into this marriage, Betty gets pregnant, and that's when things start to go sour. So according to Clarence's brother, Betty thinks Clarence's job as a coal truck driver just isn't it. It's not good enough. And she wants him to do something that will support the family more, that has some growth opportunities. And in addition to this, Betty doesn't feel safe at home. Clarence is abusive towards her. And Betty actually goes to the police and files a claim, which today we would call a restraining order, which I think is actually pretty rare at the time for a woman to go to the police and complain about domestic violence. Because at that time, more than even now, Um, They really didn't believe women. And typically, if you filed a complaint against domestic assault or domestic violence, they would blame you. In 1952, when Betty and Clarence's son, Gary Malone, is born, he's born into a broken family. He's only a few months old when Betty wraps him up and leaves her hometown for good. So... Clarence Malone and his family never get to build a relationship with Gary. They never see him again. And on the one hand, that does just seem really sad to me. But on the other hand, Clarence might have dodged a bullet. Literally. Because as Betty's future track record will play out, Clarence is lucky to leave this marriage alive. Betty is single. She's ready to mingle. It's 1952, and she has her son with her, and that sort of raises some obstacles from some potential suitors. So, you know, questions like, were you married before, Betty? Or what happened to your husband, Betty? Or did you perhaps kill your ex-husband, Betty? You know, things that you might ask on your first kind of date, you know? But Betty, you know, she knows how to handle herself. She's got her wits about her. So she concocts this story that's beautiful. She tells the potential husbands, the men in her life, that her husband, Gary's father, died after a long fight with cancer. And it's a tragic story where she sat by his bed and was faithful and loving and cared for him until his last breath. Well, the story maybe seems far-fetched to us, but it, it does work, right? Because at the end of 1952, Betty does get remarried to husband number two, New York native James Flynn. 
Now, I'll be honest, we don't really know much about this James Flynn and his relationship with Betty, but what we do know, he seems like a pretty good guy. He adopts Gary, Betty's son, making him Gary Malone Flynn, which on the surface, I don't know, it seems like a nice thing to do. I don't know if she coerced him into it or or what the backstory is there. They also have their own child together, Peggy Flynn. So now they've got the son, the daughter, they're presumably shopping for the white picket fence to complete the look, but... Before they find one, this marriage will end. It lasted only two years. It seems pretty short, but uh, who am I really to say? My first marriage lasted a year and change, so I, I feel you, Betty. Sometimes you have a practice marriage. That's fine. But we are telling the story of a potential black widow. So unfortunately, this relationship doesn't end in divorce or separation. It ends in death. In October 1954, James Flynn dies. And you might be wondering, how did he die? Well, to be honest, we actually don't really know. There are conflicting reports on his cause of death. He either froze to death in a truck or he was shot. Why these are the two options, I do not know. Well, actually, I do know because Betty said so. So after all this, you've got to assume Betty must be devastated. Well, but then again, you know, maybe not so much. She wasn't concerned enough with this death to remember how he died, because she's telling those two different stories about him being shot or freezing to death. It's a very different way to go. The only common element that she's sticking to is that this happened probably on a pier, probably in New York, but she's not going to stick around New York anymore. She's going to beat it over to Jacksonville, Florida with her kids, which, you know, does seem like a pretty good place to find a third husband who won't freeze to death. So Betty moves to Florida and she starts beauty school in 1960. And she realizes pretty quickly that she actually can do it by herself. You know, she's supporting herself. And and for the next 10 years, Betty works to become self-sufficient. And she gets her beauty license. She starts working at a salon. She's feisty, funny. And I imagine she would regale her clients, you know, while, with great tales while giving them a really cute bouffant. Um, and she remains single for 10 years. Yes, independent lady Betty. We love to see it. Which is, frankly, out of character for her. But... There's this picture of her with her kids, with little Gary and Peggy, and she just looks really happy, and her hair, really on point, you know? At this point, we wonder, maybe Betty's just been real unlucky. You know, she had this first husband that, according to her, was an abusive asshole, and anyway, he was her high school sweetheart. How long does that stuff last? And her second husband dies mysteriously, But it's New York. You know, it's the 1950s. A lot of people, I guess, freeze to death or get shot. But listen, we can't really establish a pattern based on two husbands. Well, enter husband number three. In 1964, Betty's working at the salon. She's cutting hair, doing treatments, you know, uh, beauty stuff. And a man walks through the door. He introduces himself as Richard Sills, and he sits down in Betty's chair and tells her he's a Navy man, and he's stationed in Jacksonville. Betty is crushing right away. For 10 years, she's been making a life for her and her two kids, Gary and Peggy, all by herself, but now this guy enters, and she likes him. They start dating. They fall in love. 
And when Richard is reassigned to a station in the Florida Keys, Betty picks up her life and her kids and she follows him. And they settle into a mobile home in Big Coppet Key, just east of Key West. And in 1965, they get married. I picture they probably even had key lime pie instead of wedding cake, which I like because I myself am a pie over cake person any day. But wait, what's that in the distance? I see a storm brewing. Or storms, plural. And I mean that literally. Uh They get hit by Hurricane Betsy, and then the next year it's Hurricane Alma, and then a month after that, Hurricane Inez. There's flooding and tons of damage. There's high-speed winds that tear power lines down. But somehow, miraculously, Betty and Richard's mobile home survives. So once the literal storms pass, then the figurative storms begin. The two of them get into a ton of arguments, and sometimes they get really heated, and Gary and Peggy, the kids, would often listen from the other room as they fought, sometimes, which had to be so hard. Terrible. And on occasion, ugh, I hate this, on occasion Richard would get so mad that his anger would turn towards Gary, and he would be physically harmful to him. He would hit him. On a spring day, it's April 1967, and it's a few years into their relationship, and Betty and Richard, they're at it again. This fight is loud. It's bitter. It's intense. Peggy and Gary are in the other room. They're listening. By some accounts, Richard is drunk, but this isn't like a new thing. This is something that they've been doing for a while, as we mentioned, except this fight, it ends with a bang. Two bangs, actually. Gary and Peggy, who are listening from the other room, just rush in to the sound of these gunshots. They look down and see their stepfather snorting and sputtering on the bed, trying to catch breath. Blood has spattered across the furniture floor and ceiling. And when the police arrive, Richard is already dead. Here's what Betty says happened. They're having a fight. And Richard Sills pulls out a pistol and shoots himself once in the chest. It's a pretty strange story for more than one reason, but the police accept it. And there's conflicting reports on whether they even do an autopsy. But because Richard Sills is in the Navy, the Naval Criminal Investigation Service, for all you acronymists, that's the NCIS, They draw up a report, and they write that Richard Sills was shot twice by a twenty-two caliber weapon. Now, one shot pierced his heart, and the other sliced his liver. So you're thinking to yourself, wow, shot twice. This guy really wanted to die. And this totally contradicts what Betty tells the police. And I think it's also worth noting that it's really hard to purposely shoot yourself once, let alone to do it twice That's incredibly uncommon. And the fact that they didn't even investigate it further is shocking. But I guess we'll never know what really happened because the police don't investigate any further. Betty continues to live in Key West. And so not long after Richard's death, she finds a new love interest. Her next and fourth husband, Harold Gentry. The same man whose death would land Betty behind bars. Thank you. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Betty meets Harold sometime between the summer and winter of 1967, only a few months after the death of her third husband, and similar to Richard... Harold is an army man stationed in Key West, and he's seven years younger than Betty. She's 36 at the time. He's 29. And around this time, Harold, who (laughs) apparently is a man of few words, he tells his brother Al about Betty saying he'd met somebody he liked pretty good. So, you know, Betty's, she's not, yeah, she's not raking in like the rave reviews, but he's not uh, running away screaming. That is so romantic. Honestly, that's what we can expect. I like someone pretty good. He does like her enough that the next year they get married. I really hope he didn't write his own vows, but they (laughs) they have a daughter together, Kelly Ann Gentry. And it seems like at least at the beginning here, Harold's living up to Betty's expectations. In fact, they start to travel all over the world because Harold's assigned to all these new army bases. And she and her daughter get to move to Switzerland and Germany and Greece. And, you know, they're not staying at the Ritz or anything, but it's exciting. And I'd imagine Betty's having a pretty great time. I know I would. And their daughter, Kellyanne, she actually describes Betty and Harold as being really good parents and says her childhood was really pleasant, which which I got to say, considering where we left off with Gary and Peggy, I mean, this is a huge change, you know? And I think it's important to note that Kellyanne talks about how great her parents were and how stable of a life she had. I, frankly, I hope that Peggy and Gary are with them, but we don't we don't know. So it, it could just be Kellyanne and Betty hanging out and then Peggy and Gary are getting therapy because they witnessed their father being shot. It feels very weird to have two different life experiences, but whatever. Here we are. Um, So Peggy has lost two dads. As far as Gary knows, he's lost three dads. Because remember, Betty told him that her first husband died of cancer. Speaking of which, you guys remember Clarence Malone, the first husband, the high school sweetheart? Well, he is very much alive. He's gotten remarried twice, and now he's helping his new wife run a truck stop business. Things seem to be going okay for him. Until one night, things take a turn for the worse. On November 27, 1970, Clarence Malone is shot in front of an auto shop. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, Malone was bent over the fender of his car when someone, whom he likely knew approached him from the front with a 16-gauge shotgun and killed him with one fatal shot. The sheriff on the case suspected that Clarence's killer must have been seeking settlement for a gambling debt that Clarence owed. But after Clarence's murder, his wallet was untouched, nothing was stolen, and it seems... Yeah, it seems pretty personal. Uh, We know what you're thinking. Was it Betty, but the sheriff never suspects her. Plus, at this point, he and Betty have been separated for, what, 18 years? It seems like a stretch that she's holding a grudge for that long, and 
she couldn't have killed him herself. I guess she could have hired someone to kill him. But she was out enjoying her new uh, jet-setter life, right? And she wouldn't want to put that life in jeopardy, you'd think. So while all this is happening, Betty and Harold Gentry are traveling around the world, living La Vida Loca, and in 1977, the two of them move to a ranch house in Harold's hometown, Norwood, North Carolina. I don't know Norwood, North Carolina, but I assume it's probably a big adjustment from Europe. But Harold's upbringing there was a lot like Betty's. It was pretty tough, but he's landed some land. See what I did there? He's landed Mm -hmm. some land. He has a home, he has a wife, and he has kids. But things are just not as simple as they were when Betty and Harold were traveling around the world. It's like the couples after The Bachelor when they have to go back to reality. (laughs) They're just working people again. Harold drives a delivery truck. Now, before you judge that, though, I will say it's for the Royal Chemical Company, which does sound pretty fancy, actually. I was going to say, because wasn't she upset that her first husband was a truck driver? Here we go again, Betty. Here we go again, Betty. She herself gets a few odd jobs. She's working at a drugstore. She's waiting tables. She's driving a school bus. And you know, we always say, Carrie, dress for the job you want. And looking at Betty, I have to say, she's giving off strong school bus driver vibes. She's in her mid-40s. She's got her hair up in a curly bob. Maybe it's a bouffant. She's rocking some pretty serious bags under her eyes. But like we said, at this time, like so many of Betty's other marriages... Three, to be exact, the once happy couple seemed to start falling apart. According to Betty, Harold has a drinking problem, and also he begins cheating on her. So by the 1980s, Betty begins to distance herself from Harold and his family. And at one point, we don't know the context of this, but what we do know is she makes him sleep in a camper parked in the front yard of the house, which feels like... She probably had him sleep on the couch first, and then, like, further demotion was, like, camper, out front. That's where you're sleeping. But Betty wasn't just an innocent bystander. She's not always very pleasant to be around, not even to her own family. She'd call her son Gary, who by now is in his late 20s, I don't know, early 30s, and she would just yell at him on the phone, just berate him. Gary's wife at the time, Cecilia, recalls that every time he's getting off the phone with his mom, he is bummed out. He's in tears. It would send him just spiraling into a drug or alcohol bender. But despite that, and you see this a lot with these abusive parent child relationships. He loves her anyway. He loves her so much. He can't stop talking to her on the phone. He can't cut her out, even though I think Cecilia is really urging him to. Well, and I think just to give Gary sort of some attention, I mean, his life has been really hard. His All the men that he knew as fathers are gone, are dead. And I can't imagine, I don't know if he ever found out about Clarence, but I can't imagine his life to be easy, so of course he's going to be connected to the one remaining family member, his mother. In 1985, Gary moves to Perry Township in Ohio, where he works at a nuclear power plant. I believe that's pronounced nuclear. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So his wife, Cecilia, and their three kids, they live just one state over in Michigan. So at this point in time, Gary is living alone, and... In addition to talking to his wife and three kids, he's also talking to his mother. And as you said, the calls are not 
good. They don't leave him in a good, positive place. And these berating calls really start to weigh on him, and he starts to exhibit extreme and paranoid behavior. He doesn't trust banks. He stocks up on guns. And he calls himself a survivalist. And none of this is a good sign. No. None of this is a good sign. Scary stuff. In November in 1985, he's 33, and he dies from a shotgun wound to the chest. Police rule his death a suicide, but I just do want to flag, this is the second time we've seen someone commit suicide by shooting themselves in the chest. When Cecilia, his wife, finds out, she calls the nuclear plant where he worked and they refuse to give her any information because they say, we've been told that Gary isn't married. She's like, well, who said that? Gary's mother called. Now that does not sit well with Cecilia. Years later, in an interview with Durham, North Carolina Herald Sun, she'll say, to this day, I don't know why she did that. And... I don't know how she found out first. Ooh, that gave me chills. So immediately, Cecilia worries that Betty is up to something. So Cecilia races to Ohio to show her marriage certificate to the police so that she can prove that she's next of kin. And guess who shows up later that night? Betty and Harold. Ugh, Cecilia and Betty clearly do not get along that evening. Obviously, there's tension. Cecilia suspects that Betty wants to strip Gary's home of valuables, and Betty didn't seem to expect Cecilia to even be there, his wife. Like, we, you know, there's always those jokes about, like, the mother-in-law, monster-in-law. This sounds like a really horrible relationship. Gary's ashes return to North Carolina with Betty— But Cecilia, she's never going to stop being suspicious of her. She suspects Betty had something to do with Gary's death. It it is unthinkable to me that a mother would do something like this to their child. But the crime scene does hold some strange clues. When Gary is found, the sawed-off shotgun that killed him was found under his body, which doesn't make any sense if he shot himself, right? Like, the force of the blast, if he did shoot himself, would have propelled Gary and the gun in completely opposite directions. So how did the gun end up underneath his body? Even more suspicious, Cecilia finds out that Betty had taken out a life insurance policy in Gary's name with herself, of course, as the beneficiary, And upon his death, Betty did collect $10,000, which is, you know, like $25,000 in today's money. She didn't, by the way, in case you were wondering, share a dime of that with Cecilia or with Gary's children. Oh, oh, that just makes me, that to me is so damning. It's so damning. It's 1986 and Betty just lost her son and As we know, Betty and Harold's marriage is not good, and so they finally decide to separate. It feels a little bit like a long time coming. So Betty leaves North Carolina and goes back to Florida, and Harold, maybe thinking that 
you know, things will soon be over. He's separated from Betty. He begins talking to other women. And we're not sure how long Betty is away, but when she comes back, she finds him in the house with his girlfriend. And they're separated, but that still can't be nice to walk in on. No, I mean, somebody else in Betty's situation might say to themselves, well, you know, the marriage is failing and the kids are out of the house. It's probably just, it's time for divorce, but not Betty. Betty, she doesn't need a a court or a judge to tell her how her marriage is going to end or how the property and finances are going to be divided. That'd be too much work, too many lawyers. If you want something done, you do it yourself. So around the late spring of 1986, Betty tells her neighbor that she wants revenge on Harold. Mm. She hates Harold. It's all Betty talks about. I think we've seen relationships like that where, like, you're trying to be a good friend and they just, like, keep harping on how much they hate their ex. It's really rough. Betty is out running errands and she finds herself at a swimming pool supply store. I don't know if Betty has a pool at this point, but maybe she's just shopping around. So Betty tells another woman, presumably a friend, the same stuff. She's complaining about Harold, saying she hates him, that she wants revenge. And this conversation gets so heated that the shop owner, Alan Lawrence, who happens to be a retired police officer, he walks over to see if he can calm Betty down. And instead, the conversation takes a real turn where... Betty asks Alan, a man she's never met before, she doesn't know his background as a retired police officer, she offers him $10,000 to kill Harold for her. Yeah, I mean, he turns her down right away and says, you shouldn't say things like that, but Betty's not done. She returns to Alan's pool supply store two more times, trying to get this guy to kill her husband. She even ups the ante. You won't take $10,000? i will I'll offer you uh, $10,000 plus an 85 GMC camper pickup. You know what? I'll buy a, uh, I'll buy a hot tub. It's starting to sound like murder in exchange for a Price is Right showcase. Betty's telling this guy she's going to make it easy for him. She's going to leave town. She's going to leave the door unlocked. He's not going to have to break in. And Alan Lawrence, look, this guy may own a pool store, but he knows when he's in too deep. You see what I did there? Quinn. It's good, right? Do you think at any point she was like, he was like, I can't. I'm a retired police officer. Do you think she ever found out that he was a retired police officer? Read the room, Betty. (laughs) Totally. He goes to his old department and reports Betty. And his warnings travel up the uh, chain of command. They reach the superior, who doesn't like Alan, so nothing comes of it. Then Alan Lawrence goes directly to the sheriff and still... Nothing. On July 13th, 1986, Harold Gentry is shot in his ranch house while Betty's away in Georgia. The idea, the idea that she is asking a former police officer to kill her husband and he's gone to the he's gone to other police officers to make this complaint and nothing is done. I am shocked. I truly am shocked. I guess this Allen guy, not really likable. People have notes. They don't like him. One thing we know for sure about Allen, he didn't do it. (laughs) Totally. So the day after Harold Gentry is shot, his family finds him in his house. And the place is ransacked. So the 
police immediately suspect that it was probably a burglary gone wrong. But Harold's brother, Al Gentry, is really torn up about this murder. He's there at the house, and when Betty arrives home from her trip to Georgia, she was out of town, she is completely dry-eyed and totally unconcerned. In fact, one of the first things she says to him is, I had nothing to do with Harold's death. <laughs> which feels which feels really aggressive. If you walk into the murder of your ex-husband and you immediately go, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Yeah. We're talking to Shaggy here? Like, I don't know what's happening. But and he she thinks she doth protest too much. <laughs> totally. And so she tells her alibi that she was out of town, but Al can't let his suspicions of her go. He would later say that if she had just gotten out of the car with tears in her eyes and asked him, why would anyone kill Harold? I would have never suspected her at all. But it's Betty's reaction when she arrives at the scene of the crime of her ex-husband that leads Al to go back to the sheriff's department and beg them to look further into Betty. And they do, you know, they do a proper investigation. They talk to our friend at the pool store, Alan Lawrence, the guy that Betty tried to hire to kill Harold. They talk to Betty's neighbors who tell them about how Betty was always talking about wanting revenge. What the police perhaps don't know is that with Harold dead, Betty earns $20,000 from a life insurance policy in his name, which is, again, a lot more today, maybe 50000 And the police clear her once again of wrongdoing. She sells all Harold's stuff, uses their house as collateral for a loan, and she moves again to Georgia. I guess she knows it's, it's time to skip town. But Harold's brother, Al Gentry, will make it his life's mission to see Betty behind bars. So Betty moves to Georgia, and at this time, her step-grandson, Jeff, the stepson of her deceased son, Gary, is now in his 20s, and he gets a job in Georgia, so he decides to move in with his step-grandma, Betty. Maybe he thinks it's a good place to start his adult life. Maybe she's got cheap rent. I don't know. But it seems like Jeff might have been left out of the loop because his own mother, if you remember, suspects Betty of killing his stepfather, Gary. Again, the rent had to be really, really cheap. But as soon as Jeff arrives in Georgia and moves in with Betty, he realizes he's made a huge mistake because... Betty is a really bad roommate by all standards of the word. She gets him fired from two of his jobs. She causes problems between him and his girlfriends. I don't want to know what she did. I imagine just like leaving the door open or popping her head in whenever she wanted to. But right. It seems like she's really trying to wreck his life in a way that would lead people to say, oh, it seems like this guy was... Uh, having disaster after disaster. No wonder something happened to him. And I say that because Betty also tells Jeff she wants to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy on him with her, of course, as the beneficiary. And she says to him, you know, people of our stature have insurance policies on each other. That way, if something happens to you, you take care of me. And if something happens to me, I take care of you. Uh, I think what she's trying to say is grandma needs a brand new car. 
Jeff <laughs> hightails it out of there as fast as he can, thank goodness. But, you know, Betty's not phased. She just keeps living her life, which is, well, more than we can say for her exes. She owns a salon now called Standing Ovations. And I'm not sure if they accept applause in lieu of cash, but Betty does start to spend money that she does not have. Her credit card debt's racking up, and you know what that means for Betty, right? Romance. Husband number five. I mean, we told you there were five husbands, so it's around this time that we should introduce husband number five. It's around 1990, and we meet this man, John Newmar. Now, he walks into her salon, standing ovations for a little haircut, a little trim, a little buzz, maybe a shave. I don't know. But much like her relationship with husband number three, they hit it off. It's very much like a rinse and repeat vibe. Get it? Mm -hmm. Shampoo. <laughs> Listen, Betty's the woman that does not waste any time in haircuts or romance. She's quick. So true to form, she gets married quick, just within a year of meeting John. And this time, Betty found the one, or at least the one with a really big bank account, because he's worth something like $300,000 at the beginning of their marriage. And he's known his whole life for being incredibly frugal. In fact, he raised his kids from a previous marriage to be really good with money. It was a value that he felt was so important that he ingrained it in his children. Well, but flash forward 10 years, and it's 2001, and John and Betty are filing for bankruptcy claiming $206,000 in debt on 43 different credit cards. Who let these people keep getting credit cards? This is another one of her marriages that we don't know that much about, but surprisingly, these debt issues don't break up the marriage, and they stay together for 17 years until, you guessed it, John Newmar dies in 2007. And I'm sure you're asking the question, how did he die? Was he shot? Was he stabbed? Did he mysteriously fall off a cliff or anything like that? No, nothing that obviously murderous. No, he dies of sepsis, which, if you're not familiar, is an infection of the bloodstream. So nothing, uh, you know, nothing seems fishy here, right? Well, it wouldn't be Betty if she didn't do something totally weird after her husband's death. So, husband number five dies, and what's the first thing you'd do? Probably, uh, I don't know, call his kids to tell them, right? Not if you're Betty, you wouldn't. She doesn't tell his kids. They find out that their dad died when they read the obituary in the newspaper. And when they go to see their father's body, when they show up at the funeral, by the way, she does not expect them. She is shocked to see them. But there's no body. She's already had him cremated. John's son later says in an interview with BBC, I don't think my daddy ever said he wanted to be cremated. What is she covering up? Meanwhile, in North Carolina, there's a new sheriff in town. And, you know, by that I, I mean a new sheriff has been elected to office. It's 2008. 22 years after Harold Gentry was killed, and his brother Al is still determined to prove it was Betty. And he goes to this new young sheriff, and he begs him to look at this case. 
And finally, after decades of Al waiting, he has the sheriff's ear and he convinces him to reopen the case and take a closer look at Betty. And when they do, they start to see all the question marks around Harold's death. The burglary seems staged, nothing of real value being taken. And Betty has a clear motive. She literally asked a man to kill him. So why didn't police investigate or even arrest her at the time? But there's more. Because police have access to this newfound thing called the internet, investigators are able to look at Betty's history of dead husbands. And their alarm bells go off. Almost all of them were killed under mysterious circumstances. Most of these cases are old, so the records are sparse. But in May of 2008, police have enough to arrest Betty in the case of Harold Gentry. She's charged with soliciting his murder, and investigations are opened in Ohio and Georgia. Betty's bail is set at half a million dollars. Finally, Al Gentry can breathe easy. When the local news station WCNC covers Betty's arrest, he even sounds triumphant. I never thought they'd ever get her. Because she is slick. She should be a lawyer. She's so darn slick. Eventually, bail is lowered to 300000 but she's facing three charges of soliciting for murder in North Carolina. But unfortunately for police and L. Gentry, there isn't enough evidence to charge Betty in the murders of Clarence Malone or Richard Sills, her first and third husband. And they don't even try to investigate her for her second husband's death. The one, if you remember, maybe froze or was shot in a pier in New York. And in the death of her fifth and final husband, John Newmar, they also can't find anything concrete. They suspect that it's possible that he could have been poisoned because apparently arsenic poisoning has similar symptoms to sepsis. But when they test John Newmar's ashes, they did find that the ashes did contain higher than normal levels of heavy metals, but it is still inconclusive. Yeah, it's all going to come down to the case of Harold Gentry, the only case where Betty was very public about wanting him dead. After months in jail, Betty finally gets the money to post bail, and she just walks out into the world a free woman. Her daughters, Peggy and Kellyanne, pick her up from jail. Unlike everyone else, they are totally convinced their mom's innocent. To them, she's been a loving, caring mom and grandmother, and simply put, they feel like she was dealt this really bad hand in life. They take her to Louisiana, where her daughter lives, but investigators didn't know that's where she went. She stops coming to court appearances, but they do find out why in 2009. Betty's daughter takes her in for a PET scan, and they discover Betty has terminal cancer. I think it's so ironic that she has cancer. The thing that she we started this story with her line about somebody having terminal cancer. Oh, I didn't and even think I, of that. You know, I don't want to be a dick because it's cancer, but it does kind of feel like karma has karma. found you, Betty. Totally. But all the while, the police don't know she's in Louisiana, and Al Gentry is really eager to have his day in court on behalf of his brother. He's been waiting for this moment for 22 years and he's so confused why her court date keeps getting pushed back and back and back. And he begins to fear that he won't live long enough to see justice for his brother. But any hope of bringing Betty to justice 
is dashed when in June of 2011, Betty Newmar dies. I think we were all hoping for a deathbed confession, but on her deathbed, Betty tells her daughter that she's going to go be with the two loves of her life, Harold and John, and she swears up and down she didn't kill them. When Al hears the news, he's sick to his stomach. He says she took all her secrets to the grave. She did it, right? I mean, we'll never know. I mean, none of us will know. The only person who knows are the husbands and Betty, and they're all gone. I mean, listen, if she didn't kill five, I'm going to give her at least three. You know, we can land somewhere in the middle. But I think three feels really strong, especially because she was running around town asking for someone to kill Harold. So if I was Harold's brother, I certainly wouldn't rest until I found justice for my brother. And it's so sad that he didn't. Yeah. I mean, usually where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there's a rushed cremation, there's a murder. You know, and I'm all about giving folks the benefit of the doubt. But no one is this unlucky. And the death that actually troubles me the most is her son, Gary, because I can't help but wonder, in all those years, did he see or hear something that he wasn't supposed to? Uh, Was it more than money that she needed to off him? You know, he was at the house when Richard died, and on the one hand, you could use that as an argument to say, well, what he witnessed was traumatizing. He never got over it, and then he duplicated that scene years later in his own suicide. Personally. I don't buy that, but I do hope that the last thing Gary saw was not his mom with a gun. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources to tell today's stories. Among them, we found the following sources particularly helpful. The book Black Widow, Five Dead Husbands, and the Continuing Mystery of Betty Newmar by Diane Fanning. An article in the Raleigh, North Carolina News Observer, Officials Probe Deaths of Husbands, Son, by Mitch Weiss. And an article in the BBC News titled Tangled Web of the Black Widow Case. We highly recommend you check these out if you want to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tana Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.